Hello and welcome back to the VCD Roundtable. Uh, we skipped the December and the January episode and are coming back now in um, February, March. And as of today, we have five people joining us for this week's Roundtable. Let's start the usual round. I'm going to hand over to Matthias and he can pick who's going to be next. My name is Yves Sanford. I'm CEO of the Condivision Group and I do uh, service provider architecture day in and day out uh, when I'm not doing crazy TikToks. Matthias, off to you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, welcome 2022. It's Matthias, Comdivision partner over here, taking care of service providers and mainly the automation part, VRO, Terraform now starting. So interesting stuff. Next, if from my point of view, is Romain. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> Uh, Romain Decker, uh, working for VMware as a technical product manager, um, covering everything networking. So that's fast. Um, so everything networking and security. Uh, Tobias? Yes, thanks, Romain. Uh, Tobias Baschek, working for Comdivision as a partner, uh, covering also security and networking stuff. And the last, last but not least, uh, heading over to Jörg. Yeah, Jörg Leif, I'm a technical product manager at VMware for Cloud Director and all the different integrations and extensions that we have for VCD. Good, um, as security was already twice the topic now, <laughs> um, one of the first topics we wanted to cover is something which uh, came up and made at least the Christmas days, I'm not sure, for some it made it more miserable and some actually had the excuse that they had to work the whole Christmas time. Um, but we have this massive log4j um, scenario hitting all products across the industry. I mean, this was this was far more than just hitting the VMware folks. And we have seen several incidents at service providers, luckily, um, at least for, for those which I work with, I haven't seen anyone being um, affected by a production scenario. But it more or less came as a as a heavy surprise, and it, in some spaces, even how deeply integrated these um, services and solutions are, and how difficult it can be to patch these systems, especially if not all vendors have immediate responses, and some vendors even give wrong responses. I I had one example of one vendor actually telling me uh, they would not be affected because their system is not accessible from the internet where i said it's like yeah but i can log in over a web portal which is exposed over the internet so you obviously haven't understood what the problem is um with this scenario but the impact was uh was quite heavy on the service provider industry and reminding everybody is like yeah you really need to have a procedure in place that you can upgrade your in or update your infrastructure within more or less hours or days but weeks would have not been an option when we have seen how, how much of an impact it is. What have you seen um, across the board, across the service providers? Um, how quickly were they able to respond to it? Um, any any interesting incidents? I, I know for sure we will not name anyone, but I have seen at least in, in several log entries where, customer, uh, where customers or even through the login systems, people were trying to, to misuse this. Um, who wants to go first? <laughs> I can give it a head start. So I think I think it was a very interesting time, and I completely agree what you've said. Uh, so what I saw during that phase, so I had a couple of calls scheduled with a couple of, with a few service providers, and my whole schedule just got messed up because 
oh, everyone just send me an email like, yeah, we need to cancel our appointments because we need to take care of this massive incident. We need everybody we can get hand on being able to read a blog article and install a workaround or a patch. And we need all the other guys taking care of creating all the changes to document all the steps we take for the future and stuff. So I haven't seen a service provider, at least I'm working with, who was not taking that incident serious. And um, we, I've seen one having a development or just a testing infrastructure, which might be got encrypted via that box. So it's it's massive. And personally, I would I would like to say thanks to VMware because they came up pretty fast with a lot of articles describing how to implement the workaround. And they have a proper list saying, right, for product A, we have a workaround. For product B, we have a patch. Please come back regularly to check back is if there is a new update in terms of the workaround or a final patch. So that was pretty good answer to the whole situation. So that's what I saw. And also on the, uh, so, sorry, Romain, for interrupting you, but and also on the other hand, what, what I have seen and that was, I also have implemented the two service providers is how quickly um, VMware reacted and provided some, additional functionality, how you can secure your environment with NSXT, but also NSXT was affected. So the, this was the, the, the two uh, sides of the metal at one side. Yes, you need, you need to patch your NSXT environment, but also on the other hand, you had the possibility to utilize NSXT and to secure your environment. So now hand over to Robert Roman, sorry. Yeah, that was gonna be my comment actually, because <laughs> provided fairly quickly like, um... A signature to like prevent code execution using the NSXT IDS IPS, and it also it was also available for those who have like a VMC uh, environment uh, automatically. Um, but um, yeah, and also using NSX ALB, um, some WAF signatures and so on. But uh, you mentioned quickly that NSXT was affected, but like it it also like posed a question of should NSXT be accessible from the external? That's, yes. that's always a good point. It's like how, how, how many systems should be accessed externally? But I think one of the, one of the, um, <clears throat> one of the underestimated um, issues, which a lot of people have said in the beginning is like, yeah, no one is accessing the log4j system where you had to think about is like, no, no, you don't need to have access to the log4j system in this scenario. It's like if any log entry, and that was really why this, why, why I think this was kind of the, uh, yeah, security incidents of the security incidents. It was um, this whole scenario um, on um, the pure fact that as long as someone can log in into a system or someone caused the logging system to create an entry, you were basically um, affected by this, and that was that was really why I think why 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 it hit so many people so hard, and it was really interesting to see how how different vendors reacted to it. As as Toby said, it's like the VMware lists were were pretty intense and actually quickly and easily to follow. Some other vendors were really 
bizarre and for some it took even over 48 hours until they had first responses with which was more or less completely shocking because that is like um when you see nowadays how quick um people in the industry actually or people on the wrong side of the industry actually have kits and um uh, infiltrate systems with it it's like 48 hours is if that's the first time when you get any response from a vendor that they might be affected and then another 48 hours before they provide you with a patch by that, you might actually already be land under or down under. But that leads to, to a very, very interesting discussion from my point of view. What, what's better, having an infrastructure on premises or utilize cloud-based infrastructure? Because on-prem, we see a lot of enterprises stripping down their IT departments in terms of money. So they're not spending enough money, having enough people on site taking care of all the systems. And just think about it. What, what if you have, let's say, 100 servers and a couple of physical devices and you need to patch every single system in terms of log4j, which was a high risk. So how fast can you do it? How fast are you able to collect all needed information from different vendors to patch all your systems according being safe again. Yeah, I think that um, kind of inventory management um, is one key for that so that you are uh, at least aware of all the different systems that are in your network and the different versions that are in place there. Um, and that's also, well, something, I mean, for us as a, a software vendor, we have these challenges um, given the, the bug in this case was part of a library and uh, to figure out where that library is used in the software is a big challenge um, and well a lot to be learned but on the other hand uh, from a VMware perspective you can see that we have these um, kind of inventory and dependency management systems in place that allowed us to um, react super quickly um, in this issue. Um, now from an infrastructure provider or a consumer of these software products it's uh, pretty much the, the same challenge that you need to know which product is in place, where <laughs> connected to which network parts, and then, yeah, of course, be able to react properly and have proper procedures and in place, hopefully, um, yeah, that allow you to um, react properly and quickly. But that is potentially, at least from what I have seen um, and what I heard is also a lesson learned for the Cabin Black team because they could have been much faster in actually providing um, an automatic um, um, identifier for it because they have the information about that, at least for endpoints. It's not helping you for servers, but many companies I think were also surprised, not necessarily affecting us from a service provider discussion perspective, but how many endpoint applications have uh, had Log4j implemented? Because in reality, I mean, I have done many years Java development myself. It is and was the standard methodology on how you were doing log management, period. And so there was no discussion whether you were using it. There were also really barely any alternatives which came up to it or were not actually having any other issues. So um, it's, um, I think it's going to be interesting. And I think it's also going to be interesting seeing um, um, how many more similar incidents we, we have. It, and it's, again, it's a proof of the whole argument, which is always, it's, it's in, especially in the open source world, always the argument is like open source is so much more secure because so many people can look into the code. 
is like, yes, but if that really is true, then we wouldn't have seen things like log4j and a lot of the SSL issues in the last few years. And a lot of these scenarios, and I'm not saying commercial is any better, but the whole argument of open source is more secure because people are reviewing the code. It's like, that seems to not necessarily work. Otherwise, scenarios like that should not happen in the first place, especially yeah, not for something that important. I, I think that's not really a, any valid discussion um, to have because there are so many examples for both sides. I mean, <laughs> pretty much a year ago, we had the big uh, solar winds <laughs> supply chain issue without any open source components. So um, yeah, it affects both. And I guess it gets very uh, yeah philosophical and does not help anyone to um, try to fight a fight that doesn't need to be fighted. <laughs> no, rather, I, mean, I, I, I think it's rather important or the, given the um, amount or the impact of this kind of um, yeah, uh, bug or security issue hopefully makes people aware that they have to be prepared and no matter what kind of software they are using, um, there will be these bugs in commercial software, in open source software going on. And um, there's no point or no chance to avoid this kind of stuff, but rather be prepared and have procedures in place to react quickly. But that's yes. also... I think, <clears throat> sorry. I, I think it, it just revealed the lack of documentation most companies, enterprises are facing in terms of which software is in place, which software is installed on which system, at least find affected systems quicker than just like walking around like, oh, there is a server. I haven't seen this one for three years. Oh, nice. I haven't installed any security updates for a couple of years mm -hmm. because I didn't know that system exists. So I think the lack of documentation is a, a big thing which we should take care of in the future. I think it's overall, it's also showing that how complex the infrastructure or the more and more we move from a hardware-based stack into a software stack, the more we move also networking and other components into a software stack, how much more important it will be moving forward to get proper software lifecycle life management in place. Um, in a few years time, it will become more and more difficult to manually maintain your vSphere, NSX, VCD and 15,000 other components especially now that we are starting to see more and more container solutions and other things coming into play, which have completely different release cycles and are much faster um, from a release uh, pace perspective. This is going to be, um, I think, a very, very interesting procedure moving forward, how lifecycle management comes into play um, also from all of these dependencies. It's like if you if you are currently in a service provider environment and you have manually installed a VCD and everything else, um, the last time I did it for a South American service provider, I think it took me one or two hours until I had all the dependencies actually written down and uh, complete, com more or less compiled an upgrade path from where they were to where they needed to be. And all of that is just then the validation that the versions are correct. That doesn't mean that the data and everything else is in place and nothing else goes wrong. So I think moving forward, we will also see more and more providers really rethink if they really want to maintain all of that manually or if they want to build their own automation procedure for it or jump into uh, toolkits like VCF or STDC manager to, to take some of that abstraction away from them. I think that 
that's already the good starting point. I think already what, and also here, great, great work by VMware is already that here the, the lifecycle manager for cloud providers, this is the important part, lifecycle manager for cloud providers really supports us here uh, doing the whole upgrade stuff and so on. So this is really already good stuff. Starting point uh, with the release, I think it was in by the end of October last year that the uh, cloud provider lifecycle manager has been released, where we can now deploy the whole uh, cloud director stuff, uh, RabbitMQ uh, based on Bitnami, I think already. Yeah, uh, it's already based on Bitnami and more and more products to follow. So Tenant App is, I think Tenant App is already also in there and more and more products will follow in into the stuff. And this really makes stuff like Log4J hopefully much easier in the in the future to react for Log4J. Yeah, but also, I mean, coming back to lifecycle management, uh, one of the things um, is as we skip the end of January um, event, we should have actually had um, had the um, it's the end of N6V party. Um, to be realistic, when I look at my schedule, and I think everybody else can can easily join in into that, I see that more something. <laughs> I have more meetings which involve N6V, but luckily at the end of the meeting is also N6V2T migration project. <laughs> it, off. Um, it seems that companies and providers are finally getting to the point that they now need to migrate now that VMware really hasn't extended support for it. I think some were still waiting up until end of January. It's like, maybe they do it. Maybe, maybe they will just actually extend it for another year. Um, but we still see um, that service providers are actually starting it. And um, again, from, I mean, we see different projects um, going on from, from providers. What I see again and again, and I just wanted to reiterate that across the board is like, um, is the whole discussion that most service providers are not aware on the changes this migration brings with it. The whole discussion on how you change routing and everything else. I mean, we covered that in a, in a previous um, session again, but I just wanted to reiterate that for providers because very often people get confused when they involve us or, or uh, VMware PSO or others that, hey, we need to start with a design session because everybody is still of the opinion. It's like, hey, we just run the upgrade procedure and then everything is going to be fine. It's, it's we need additional hardware because we need to migrate workloads from one side to another that could be done in the place of a migration project or something else. There are other rethinkings like how do you do routing, security and other pieces. Um, maybe maybe into the um, overall group is like, do you see this as well um, from, from the projects that service providers are not necessarily always that prepared for what it really means and underestimate the effort of the project still i mean we have been talking about it for nearly a year now maybe romaine i'm pushing this over to you for for first i, I thought everyone had migrated yet <laughs> uh no i mean um I, I have certainly seen like a lot of increased uh like over, over like 2021, increased interest about V2T migration and number of discussions with also the challenges that we are 
hearing and listening to. And then it was quite calm, I would say, in December and January. And now it's starting to ramp him up again. And indeed, um, a lot of people are waking up. Uh, they were just expecting that uh, we extend support, although we have been quite clear about that uh, since the beginning. Um, uh, the, the engineering team continues to develop the NSXV2T migration tool. We have a long backlog of items. So we have a one tree tool list coming up um, in a few weeks. Uh, we are waiting actually for some BCD API to, to change and then we will have a subsequent release and so on and so on. So the, 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 the tool is, continue, is still being developed. Although I would say that, like I would say that at least half of the provider could migrate today completely. And the other half uh, could easily start to migrate and migrate most of their workload. And if, if they don't know how they can contact us and we can provide guidance on, on how to mitigate some of the blocking items, um, that's, uh, that's okay. You know, so we, we, the, the things that we continue to develop are more nice to have uh, or things that will ease the migration process, but not that are completely blocking the migration process. So to be fair, the latest update, so with, with the release of the 1.3, already NSX ALP is inside there. So you can also now migrate your existing NSX V load balancer to NSX oh, that's, ALP. That was that's, there actually since 1.1.1. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it was 1.1, one, one one. so it is also inside there because this was the last time I was really surprised to say, hey, cool, now load balancing is also there. Um, the funny thing is, and I'm currently working on a migration migration pro, uh, project, this is what Eve already mentioned before, um, now and now, more and more the, the pro service providers came up with the, with, the van, with the fenced V apps and saying, hey, okay, how can we do this? And oh, we need really to change our routing, we need to change our nothing. This is really something which has been overseen by service providers since ages, because we know that mm -hmm. the fence network are completely gone in NSXT. They are not possible anymore. Um, and more and more providers are surprised and say, hey, oh, how, how can we handle the fence network uh, mm -hmm. in, in the future? Um, and yes, still they are more or less, less a road blocker with, for the migration tool itself because we need to uh, figure out the solution uh, before. But it is there. We can we know now how we can can address these issues. Uh, this is what I have seen in the last yeah, more or less three four weeks. Yeah, but for the fence VF, I, I want to jump on that. Um, it's a lot of, well, I would say, I, I don't say, let me take that back. We do have some some providers and some customers, they just expect the NSXT and the workloads managed and connected by and secured by NSXT working 100% the same way that they did with NSXB. And we, we all know that's not that that will not be true. They'll, they'll maybe some changes in the UI or in the API or even in how they operationalize uh, their tasks or the tenants um, manage their workloads and so on. 
And the fence V app is a, is a good example because fencing was is something that is coming from back in the days, and and it, it it was using some very specific feature that NSXV offered, like the proxy R on the ESG that is automatically instantiated. But you only need that if you have one big flat network, and if you want to have like the internal V app network on the same subnet. That's the only. That's the only use case where you need that. And I, I would question that design. I know it's easy and it's um, it's simple and it simplifies things for troubleshooting and for development and for, mm. for the, all the development use case. But with a small minor change, you can actually overcome the fencing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the funny and, thing is... Uh, and so, so, uh, so, sorry, but just to finish, some people they just don't want to change, and it's it's, it's not a hard change. It's uh, it's I, I understand the migration is always painful. I've been through that, and I've been a customer, a system integrator before, and I've gone through migrations and even more painful than that one. And it's not easy, it's not funny, but uh, I I would yeah, let's let's just migrate everything, and then we'll be done. What I would like to add, because I, I, I agree 100% with Romain, what I would like to add is what I saw in the past where companies, service providers, as well as enterprises, just waiting for something. Um, please click here and the whole migration will be done automatically for you. It's just do it in place, whatever. So many companies are just used to that behavior, but... VMware and the whole BU were completely honest in the in the communication saying there will be no just click here in place upgrade done. Please take care of your migration path transitioning from V to T. And the, the communication was 100% clear, at least from my point of view. And I guess that still many companies are just waiting for the magic tool taking care of everything to get your whole infrastructure from V to T. Exactly. And I don't want to be selfish here, but it's also frustrates me because we because some people are some customers and some providers are waiting. It's actually taking times from the engineering team to not focus on advanced services and advanced future next gen networking and security services that we could focus on. So the complete NSXT and VCD integration is actually slowed down by the number of uh, uh, VCD instances that have not been migrated to NSXT yet because we have to to really to 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 to, to talk, to join in meetings, to um, focus on very small specific uh, edits and, and 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 new features, but that's actually consuming a, a ton of time um, mm -hmm. that we cannot really dedicate to future development, and that that personally frustrates me a bit. Yeah, fully 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 on that, Romain, because. <laughs> this is also something I see that at the moment it looks like it just it just looks like that the deeper integration from newer features from from NSXT and you have seen we have seen this with the release of NSXT Suite 2 which by the way was not really the best release of, of, of NSXT at the starting point and then uh, it, with the second shot it was fine but 
this time it really has taken a little while until uh, NSXT Suite 2 was supported by vCloud Director. So this is really something where I see what you are saying right now that still the BU uh, and the engineering teams needs to figure uh, needs to have a look at the whole migration story and not uh, going on and bring in new features, whatever is there on their roadmap. Uh, we don't need to talk about roadmap right now uh because as as you mentioned uh you really need to finish the migration right as soon as possible uh because more and more service providers will really run into issues in the near future but i i would just really clarify that we do have different teams working on on both like the new features and, yeah, yeah. and the v2t but i mean the the, the core uh, networking team of vcd has has to work on some edits to cope for the V2T migration as well. Mm. But yeah, I'm impatient that that's the, that everything will be done and everyone is migrated and happy and, and yeah, then we I, can move I'm on. I'm currently thinking because uh, have you any idea when was the first time saying, oh, we have NSXT, uh, we will be gone in the future somewhere and there will be no in place migration path from b2t i think it was two years ago vmware made that statement yes roughly yes. okay thank you yeah even more than that oh yeah even <laughs> even, even more because i think i think the the, the announcement was in Bas vmworld barcelona the last time we, were, we have been in barcelona in person so it is more more <laughs> or less three three we are, we are already running up to the to three years mm -hmm. Let's yes. say two and a half. Okay, let's say two and a half. Let's give math <laughs> a chance. Yeah, it was Barcelona 2019. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's it. Good, but enough looking back, I would say, is um, where are we? What are we expecting for this year? I mean, VM uh, World in person. Sorry. <laughs> That still we are working towards that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I hope so. Um, so uh, I know that yeah, Toby so. has already booked his flight. Uh, he is <laughs> he is he's so convinced that we have brought in person will happen that he already booked his US flights. So um, that's definitely on the list. Um, and I'm I'm I, I think the US one definitely is going to happen. I'm, I would be more concerned about Europe, but Mobile World Congress happens this week as well. So why shouldn't we be able to do that um, then from that perspective? But um, some of the things, I mean, last year, the whole announcement, uh, announcement around sovereign cloud and, and things like that. I've thought about that quite a bit uh, lately. Also in preparation, as I'm as I'm preparing a few keynotes for for a few cloud conferences moving forward. Um, when I talk to customers at the moment on the other so customers of service providers, I don't see them really massively looking into that they as if they were worried about it because they say it's like we are going to use Office 365 anyway, so we are already using Microsoft. We are going to use AWS anyways. It's like. So for me, the question is, do we really see that much push from customers toward yeah. it um, or? Romain is nodding, so he needs to say Yeah, something. <laughs> I thought that someone would jump in, but uh, I, I, I'm seeing like use cases and a need, but it's never like for the complete infrastructure. 
it's always for specific parts of the infrastructure. If you take like now something that, that talks to everyone, COVID-19, uh, with all the vaccination campaign in France, um, I would talk for France because I know the, the, the rules and the, the compliance here. Um, the, the health data has to be stored somewhere in the country. But the company that does the vaccination and the institution that has like the, the framework and the back end around like uh, scheduling the appointments and so on, they don't need to have that specific in, in a cloud that is stored in France. They use some pieces of AWS and some pieces of cloud, of a sovereign cloud in France. Um, so it's, it's never, it's never white or black. It's never like zero or a hundred percent. It's always for small pieces, I think. And that in, in that sense, it, it's, I think it, it will definitely make sense. Yeah. And it will be for, especially when we look well at the market outside of the United States um, for providers in Europe and in, Asia Pacific, um, it will be not too hard for them um, to become a sovereign cloud provider or like a, a certified sovereign cloud provider because they already in most cases have local data centers. If they run these data centers, they have management and uh, yeah, data in-house. So um, and as Romain mentioned, from a customer perspective, um, we see that demand, especially for um, environments where there are some yeah, compliance requirements and for service providers that are already, um, yeah, have already a, a footprint that is local within a country or a jurisdiction, it's a good opportunity for them to well, capture these workloads and to be able to offer that kind of um, sovereign cloud services as well. But yes, Toby, any, any ideas from your side? How, how do you see that with the service providers you work with? Um, is there a big push for, for that or? So uh, the, the service providers I'm working with are more um, concerned about ramping up specific services in their infrastructure, enabling them to provide services to their customers, like TKGM, for example, um, or stuff like this, but they're not they're thinking about like getting Azure desktops into their offerings or add very specific features or services from public clouds like Romain mentioned, but I'm not seeing sovereign currently, but it's just my really narrowed down view I currently have. Same, it's the same from my side, like Matthias mentioned, my two service providers, which are based in Germany at the moment, more and more try to become or be, to go the way with the sovereign cloud uh, infrastructure to have, but also here to have specific services uh, uh, hosted in the public cloud, like already Matthias mentioned, uh, Kubernetes is at the moment here really an interesting part, uh, TKGM uh, and so on and the stuff which will be covered in one of our next sessions. Uh, but yes, I also, from, from my perspective, it's the clear way to go. This will be the future, especially as you have mentioned already outside of the US. Speaking about the US, um, one of the interesting topics which I have seen lately come up more and more from service providers is that 
something which we discussed in the past already, but I see more and more requests now going down that uh, pathway where service providers really open up discussions whether they should really build certain types of infrastructure. So one of the discussions I had lately was a service provider who was thinking about whether they will build a desktop as a service infrastructure themselves anymore or leverage just um, a Microsoft or something else cloud and build front ends and everything else um, around that. Uh, so that is also, I think, a change which I, I constantly keep seeing more and more that service providers start thinking about what are the services like, I mean, what we originally would expect from enterprises as well. What are the services we are really good in, which we should build ourselves? What are services where we are potentially becoming more like a reseller and build add-on services on top of it? And what are services which we let someone else operate and we just repurchase them or, or, re, uh, or uh, provide them through? Um, so that seems to be more and more a point, but that's also driven by, by I mean, the things we, we see currently in the industry, like hardware shortages, where it's not just only that they want to do that approach, but also because they, they don't necessarily get the hardware or anything else. Plus, I mean, Microsoft with M365 making clear, let's see, or showing clear directions that they have the opinion that what they have done with Office 365 potentially is going to happen next for the desktop system where really you can't um, get out of the subscription model anymore. And then it will be more and more customers who want to run that in their um, structure from that perspective. Yeah, that, that is absolutely something that we have, um, well, um, <laughs> mind and we are uh, working actively since a couple of years now for that model that we have. Um, service provider partners that are cloud builders, they run their own data centers, operate their own data centers and sell services on top of their own infrastructure. But we also have a lot of service providers that are rather um, asset light, so they don't own their own data centers, but build services on top of other providers gears or hyperscaler gear. And that is something that we in our product portfolio um, cover pretty well because we give service provider partners um, the options to do both and to combine that very easily. So when you think about Cloud Director, we of course have the um, Cloud Director um, on-premises installation where, uh, for cloud builders to operate a multi-tenant cloud in a shared infrastructure in their own data centers. But then we also have Cloud Director Service, which is a um, yeah service Cloud Director installation managed by VMware that can connect to um, hyperscaler data centers as backend. For now, VMC on AWS, of course, but on the roadmap, we are working with the other um, VMware stack on the other hyperscalers as well to support that in Cloud Director service. And as a service provider, you can um, combine both of them with the multi-site uh, functionality in Cloud Director. And that is something we see a lot of service providers doing, especially when they need to do some geo expansion. They have one large customer that needs a footprint in a different regions where they don't own their own data center, then with that combination of uh, on-prem cloud director and cloud director service in the other region, they can very easily fit this customer need. And then of course, when we look about um, cloud partner navigator to um, allow them yeah, to be that uh, managed service provider for other cloud services from VMware perspective and from the VMware product portfolio, that of course also falls into that category to cater for um, yeah, service providers that do not run their own infrastructure all over the place. 
Anyone else seeing something similar? Matthias, you nodded at least quickly. Yeah, so I, I think the, the direction you talked about is a, is a, it's a massive one, especially reselling a hyperscaler gear. So what I saw is like uh, service providers are reselling like um, Azure desktops a lot and just having a small infrastructure providing desktops with uh, 3D GPU, whatever needed and a GPU gear not being available in the hyperscaler infrastructure. So really specialized hardware kind of, but customers are willing to pay more for those desktops. So it's easier to sell those um, niche services instead of trying to compete with the hyperscalers in, in price terms. Yeah, talking about GPUs, by the way, um, we didn't talk at all about that yet, but in general, we also had a new release of VCD with version 10.3.2, which now has the first level of um, VGPU support. VGPU support. So you can use the NVIDIA um, physical GPUs in the servers with the GPU profiles in vSphere, and then use the uh, placement policies in VCD to map these, to create VGPU profiles for the virtual machines and then publish them to the different organization VDCs. So as a service provider, that's a, a pretty powerful offering, even if in the first version, it might be um, yeah, rather simple and not too too many options, but it is flexible enough to be, provide more flexibility than uh, for your tenants or for your end customers than the hyperscaler when it comes to these um, GPU services. Right, now, now I want to test it with the GPU. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, and, and, and also here, the, the, the story is, as as Eve already mentioned, I don't think really that we will have so many desktop as a service providers in the near future because this is clearly a market which now Microsoft is fully in. Um, related to the su subscription-based license model, they already started to provide this M365. Um, but also on the other hand, if you really have a look to the current solutions, um, for example, Horizon on Azure that you already can utilize also Linux desktops on Azure. Uh, I really think that the test, especially the desktop market will be fully handled by hyperscalers in the future and not by, maybe for some, like Matthias mentioned, for some small use cases where I really need specialized hardware uh, for service providers, but the, the rest of the market will be clearly done here on the hyperscaler side. There's one thing where I think um, where, um, well, uh, a certain type of service providers that will be able to um, capture these um, yeah, desktop workloads as well that I've seen is service providers that uh, specialize on a certain industry or a certain um, yeah, sort of niche of vertical. So they, they don't provide the full generic capabilities for uh, infrastructure service uh, for everything, but for example, mm -hmm. there are special service providers for healthcare or for the, um, I don't know, automobile industry. And then that's a service provider that has a lot of business know-how as well. And they can mm -hmm. offer um, a full service to their end customer, even if it's uh, server infrastructure. And then they also can typically capture some uh, desktop workloads as well, mm -hmm. because um, they yeah, know exactly the requirements for the, uh, for the customer and they can build the infrastructure based on these requirements rather than um, like a hyperscaler who can offer or has to build a platform that can offer pretty much everything, uh -huh. but nothing yeah. too special or too exactly fit. 
Good. Okay. I think we are getting to the top of the hour. Anything else we are expecting from 2022? And that will be, I think, the closing statement from everybody as well, um, because we don't want to overstretch the sessions by making another 75, 90 minute session again. Um, <laughs> so any other expectations from uh, 2022, what we are going to see in the service provider space? Um, I, I go first. Um, what I'm definitely expecting besides the whole hybrid cloud scenario, we will see definitely an increase in demand for also disaster recovery and um, and copy services where companies just finally see that they need to do more to be prepared for any kind of disaster. So that's definitely one of the areas where I see we will see a big increase this year. We will overall still a continued big increase for companies moving towards the cloud, whether it's always going to a hyperscaler. I doubt that the small and medium service providers we have within the VMware ecosystem, 4,000, 5,000. So there are quite a few um, which have very interesting niche solutions as well. But I think that will definitely grow for this year. And uh, yeah, hopefully by the end of the year, we can finally then say there is no M6B in the service provider space anymore. But uh, let's see how we get there. Who wants to go next? Toby is already nodding. So Toby, you're yeah, like... No, no M6B would be perfect. What I really see more and more coming is the whole Tanzu slash Kubernetes story in Cloud Director and also for service providers. This really will be more and more become state of the art in 2022. And last but not least, security. So this is what, what I also see that this year really will be an interesting part of, of having security, especially on load balancing side and especially on, on networking side. Uh, more and more security uh, will be coming interesting on service provider side. So will it be the year of the security? <laughs> I, I, I would say it is not the year of VDI anymore. It is now the year of security. <laughs> Matthias. Maybe it's going to be the year of <laughs> desktop security. <laughs> Just to introduce. So it's VDIS. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I still hope that the, the whole story about migrating V2T and that V's done uh, will come into place and, and that most of the SPs and companies are aware that, that V's gone or will be gone in the near future and no support anymore and stuff. And yeah, and VMworld in person, I still stick with that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. For me, um, TKG for sure is a huge topic. Um, I would combine that with, um, as we mentioned, GPU um, from a technical perspective, <clears throat> mainly to create some, uh, yeah, full stack solution or full stack infrastructure for these machine learning and AI workloads. That is a huge topic um, where end customers have a lot of use cases for that, but they are currently just yeah ramping up knowledge and typically don't have the infrastructure in-house. So it's a huge opportunity for service provider partners to help them <laughs> providing the infrastructure and perhaps even providing a lot of, uh, again, knowledge to go up the stack and provide them, yeah, a good solution so that uh, the end customer can really focus on their applications. And Romain. Yeah, what to say after? five <laughs> <laughs> for four guys like that um no i, I mean 
I'm just trying to think out loud, like it's, yeah, more security. Uh, once, really once like NSXT is the foundation for advanced networking and security services. So when everyone will be there, uh, it will open new new use cases and, and really high value use cases. I'm also seeing more and more um, um, potential for better extensibility inside VCD, uh, which would open also some additional cool use cases um, in the future. And VMworld in person. <laughs> <laughs> Good, everybody. Uh, thank you all for the session. And we will talk again end of March and try to get the session online then as quick as possible. Um, I'm going to be in the US that week then um, and prepare um, for a US event. But um, yeah, hope to catch up there. And thank you all for listening. We will post this again, as always, on all of the uh, social media platforms, as well as in all the podcast platforms, as usual. Thank you. And if you have any topics we should cover in one of the next sessions, please let us know over Twitter, email, direct messages, or whatever you can find. And with that, Happy 2022. <laughs>